Hi, I'm LaDonna Humphrey. And I'm Alicia Lockhart. Welcome to Deep Dark Secrets, the podcast that shines a light in dark places. This is episode two of Death Fetish in the Daylight. If you listen to episode one, you have a pretty good idea of what death fetish is. If not, you might want to go back and take a listen. Today, we're going to talk about our undercover investigation into the death fetish community and what we have experienced and learned that ultimately drove us to co-author a book together entitled Strangled. It's book two in the Who Killed Melissa Witt series. I'm going to kick off this story by taking you all back to 2009. And in 2009, I was a 22-year-old and I was looking for a job. And I had been looking at Craigslist ads for work, which I now know is not the best place to look for a job. In that time, I was open to all sorts of ideas. So I ended up finding this listing in there that said adult film producer seeks personal assistant. And I was intrigued. At this point in my life, I really feel like I valued strange experiences. I've always been kind of a goth girl. And so there wasn't much that scared me at this point in my life. And I just read that ad and thought, well, it's at least worth making a phone call for. I have office experience. And so I just wanted to see if it was a real ad. I remember feeling a little bit worried that it might have been some kind of like coded request for a prostitute or something. But When I called the number, the guy that I talked to, his name was Carl. Well, uh, we'll just call him Carl. (laughs) He seemed pretty normal. And he just talked about how he was this uh, busy porn producer. And he told me that he mainly made fetish videos and that he just had so much work that he couldn't keep everything straight and he just needed somebody to do his bookkeeping and appointment setting and things like that. And it really sounded like a legitimate opportunity. So we went ahead and scheduled an interview and I uh, showed up at this uh, warehouse to meet him for the interview. And when I got there, he was standing outside and he greeted me and We stood on the sidewalk for a little bit and talked. He said that he was in the middle of filming a pornography right then in the warehouse. Oh, wow. And (laughs) yeah, so he had the door kind of propped open. And I remember just I was curious. So I peeked in and looked and there really was like a legitimate team of people filming a porn in there. And the kind of porn that they were filming was a... (laughs) was a clown pornography. <laughs> oh, wow. Like in a full-blown clown suit or? Uh, well, it was a porn. So there were people in various states of undress. But yes, there were these beautiful models that had clown face paint on with the noses. And one of them was like holding a bouquet of penis-shaped balloons. I remember I didn't want to look too long, but it was, you know, it was amusing to me. And it it really did, I guess, like it made me feel comfortable that this guy was legitimate. You know, he had a crew, a camera crew. There was a bunch of people that looked safe and legitimate. And so we just, we stood there and finished talking about what his office needs were. I told him very little about myself at this point. I just said verbally that I had office experience and that I was willing to help him and that I wasn't deterred by this being an adult sort of business. 
And so he actually hired me right there on the spot, like without looking at my credentials, without checking my references, anything like that. Oh, wow. Did he scare you at all? I mean, I just, I have to throw that in there. Did he, did he seem scary at all? Not in that moment. No, he seemed like a really like funny, um, you know, like he was laughing at himself when he was showing me what they were doing in the warehouse. And it just seemed like he was a really down to earth guy. I didn't at that point feel frightened of him. He jotted down the address of where I would be starting work the next week as his personal assistant. And I looked up the address. It was like a one of those public office spaces. So I felt comfortable going into the situation. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, you're young and, you know, bulletproof and yeah. <laughs> exactly. He, he seems normal. I think. Yeah. This part is fascinating. I'm, I'm hanging on every word. Yeah. I, in retrospect, it's one of those weird memories, one of my weirdest memories, and it's about to get weirder. <laughs> So I show up for my first day of work and he's, he's in the office already and the office is like empty. And what I mean by that is he's sitting there with a, a laptop on the table and there's two tables that are like kind of butted up next to each other in an L shape with two chairs. And there's like a tote, a plastic storage tote in there. But there's really nothing else, like no decorations, no phones, no like computers and hard drives or anything like that. It almost reminded me of like a set because it was just so empty. It looked like we were playing office. That just seems normal almost. Yeah. And so I sit down and I remember at the time feeling like it was a little weird that the office was empty. But you know, it wasn't enough to make me like run out of there. <laughs> run out screaming, afraid. Yeah, not not yet anyways. <laughs> so I sit down with him and we start going through the normal like first day stuff that you would do. He didn't have me sign any contracts or paperwork. But you know, I was like, this is a small business. This is just gonna be chill between the two of us. And he he was showing me some things on his laptop about his business. And I was asking him normal questions about like what kind of software he uses and what sort of things I can help with and just asking if I needed training for anything. And we got through all of that talk, I would say in about 45 minutes. It didn't take too much time. He was just showing me things on his laptop. And then after that was over, I, I asked him if I could get started on anything. And he was like, well, I actually don't have a computer for you to work on today. So I guess there's not anything for you to do. I guess I felt a little bit tricked because he had um, sort of promised me that I would be having these shifts that were like six to eight hour shifts and that I would have full-time hours pretty shortly after I started. So I I think that I looked confused when he was telling me that that was it for the day. Yeah, I and would be confused too. I mean, wh where's my full shift? That's strange. I don't have a very good poker face, so I feel like I looked confused. And he he was like, hey, don't worry. I'm still going to pay you for the full day of work. Like, you just have to keep record of, of the days that you work for me. And like, 
you don't have to stay here today. I'll pay you for the whole day. And then I was like, okay, this is a nice guy. He understands that I was expecting to be working all day. He's generous. So before I got up to leave, he asked me if I could stay a little bit longer and if we might want to get to know each other personally better. (laughs) Oh, wow. That's a red flag. Oh, yeah. So first the empty office and then this question. But again, I was 22. I was pretty naive. And so I didn't realize it in the moment that that was strange. But yeah, I said, okay. And so we started talking about how we had both wound up in Portland, Oregon, which is where we were at the time. It's where I used to live, lived there for many, many years. And that's where Carl's production company is is based out of. So he was just telling me a little bit about his history and background. And eventually he slips in the question, do you have a boyfriend? Oh, wow. Just wanting that personal information from you. That, that's a little scary. Yeah. And then like, of course, co-workers learn those things about each other over time as they're working together. But for that to be his first question was really uh kind of a red flag that I should have noticed. I told him that I had a boyfriend at the time because I did. And I asked him if he had a girlfriend and he said that he did. And he told me that I would actually be like taking her place in his company and that she might be a little salty with me about that for a while because she might feel angry that I was taking her spot as his personal assistant, but he was just saying she was too busy to do it anymore and that he needed me to do everything now. Oh, wow. That's like red flag number three. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I somehow was still just like, it was all over my head still. So we, we finished talking about our significant others and I'm telling you, this man was like, he was getting kind of like sweaty and stuttery at this point. He seemed like he was having a hard time talking to me. And at one point he just said, I'm sorry, you're just so pretty. It's hard for me to talk to you. Oh, wow. Then he went right into asking me because I was so pretty, like he had just mentioned, he he wanted to know if I had ever done any modeling. I actually had done some modeling before for a company called Sock Dreams. I don't know if they're still open, but they were a really cute Portland-based company that sold different like knee-high socks and pantyhose and things like that. So I actually had modeled for that website and had pictures of just my feet in cute socks on a website. And I I wound up telling him that and he was then excited because he was like, wow, so you are kind of a model. And I just, you know, I want you to know that I always need models and I get very interesting jobs sometimes that are like high paid for women. And, you know, I'd like to include you on my, my list of models. I have to ask a question here. I mean, Looking back, do you feel like that was the beginning stages of him grooming you or trying to groom you? Absolutely. I realize now that's absolutely what he was doing. I think that was his intention the whole time. Like from the point that I called him on the phone to ask about the work, I really think that he knew that that's where he was going to steer things. Oh, it's, it sounds like it. I mean, he, it almost sounds like as you tell the story, he's preying on a, a young woman that he knows is younger and naive and seems like he was good at what he did. I agree. I think that also because he was a porn producer, you know, there's a certain 
I guess, look and feel of a seasoned porn star. And I think that for him, I think that his production, he was looking for those like first timers, those girls that didn't know what to do, or I think he was looking for innocence. Yeah, that's what it sounds like to me. It smacks of a setup from the beginning of the ad and, you know, to lure somebody in. I, that I, I could be wrong. It's just that's what it feels like. It feels very predator-like. And at the time, again, I was just so naive. I was like thinking that he was just trying to make sure that I was making as much money as possible with him. So we did start talking about the kind of modeling work that he had available. And I was really hesitant at first. I was like, well, you you make pornography and I don't have any desire to be a porn star. And I was like resistant. You know, I was like, well, I've done modeling before, but I don't want to do that kind of modeling. That's not for me. And he really pushed back pretty hard on that. He he pretty much acted like I didn't know what I wanted or needed. And he told me that he was sure that there would be work that would be comfortable for me and work that I would be willing to do. And so he just asked me, well, what what exactly are you comfortable doing? And so I was like, not much, you know, I I don't want to be in a film that has sex in it. I don't want to have people touching me. I don't want to touch other people. I don't want to be in any sort of fetish or sexual film where people can see my face and identify me. Yeah, that's reasonable. And it's good to have those boundaries. Do you think he was accepting of those boundaries? No, but he did this in such a sly way. I feel like a respectful person would have been like, okay, this is not your, uh, you're not interested in this and backed off. But he just kept trying to convince me that there would be a way for me to make like $500 an hour working for him and that all those criterias would be met that I wouldn't have to be in a movie with anybody. He was talking to me like I was young and stupid. He was like, you don't even know the kind of fetish films I make. I make crush videos. And so I was asking him, well, what's that? You know, I didn't even know. I had no idea what a lot of these fetishes were that he was mentioning. Have you ever heard of crush, LaDonna? No, no, not until we delved into <laughs> the world of death fetish, but I don't think most people would. You know, that's just such a rare desire. It's almost kind of scary to think about that people are sexually gratified by that type of thing. But yeah, I guess there's something for everyone out there. And there are so many different kinds of fetishes. But he used this crush fetish to really reel me in because crush fetish is it's simply people crushing or compressing different objects or food or bugs or things with their feet or with like sexy high heels. That's a real arousing thing for people that have this crush fetish. And so he was asking me, you know, would you be willing to step on a birthday cake and take a video just with your ankles down showing? And so when he brought up a suggestion like that, I was like, well, maybe actually. And so I started thinking that he had been right this whole time and that I, you know, I didn't actually know what he was filming or with him giving me that example, I did change my mind. And I said, well, yeah, if it was something like that and it was just my feet and it was just a birthday cake. <laughs> yes, I would do that. Yeah, I mean, that's no big deal. You're in your 20s. You want to 
pay your rent. Stepping on a birthday cake, that's no big deal. That was his hook, wasn't it? That was how he got you hooked. Yes, absolutely. So he got me to say yes, that I would be willing to be contacted for these kinds of jobs. And when we finished talking about that, he shut down and it was like case closed. He had fulfilled the mission there. And so he like stood up and acted like he needed to go. And we both left that day. And within like 48 hours or so, he called me to uh, proposition me for a film. Oh, that was fast. Yeah, it was like magic. He just had work for me right away. And so he called and he was really, really playing this up. He was like, okay, I'm going to tell you about this very high paid job that just came in. I think you're the perfect person for it. There's no other people in it. He was just talking this new job that came in. He said it was a custom ordered film for one guy and that it would never go online, that it would just be for this one client that he had a private video for his private collection. And he's like, I don't want to scare you, but it's a morgue fetish video. And I noticed he really used that term fetish video. He would not call it a pornography because he knew that made me uncomfortable. That's just frightening. It's a morgue film. I mean, did that make your heart skip a beat as he's describing this to you? To be honest with you, at this point in my life, I was pretty into gothic community, gothic subculture. I wore all black. I really loved Halloween and horror movies. And I still do. That was like part of, you know, my public persona. And I did feel like if anybody was going to be comfortable with some kind of morgue setting, a girl like that would be. It didn't scare me the way I, I think that most people may have been scared by that. And also, I just didn't have very good boundaries. I was really naive. I wasn't thinking about what that really meant. I was just hearing him say, this is a morgue fetish video. I just need you to lay still for a few minutes on a morgue slab and I'm going to do all the work. I'm going to film different angles of you pretending to be dead. And that's all. That's all that has to happen. And it'll be the easiest $500 you've ever made. Absolutely. I mean, it sounds that way. It also feels like maybe there's a catch. I see that so clearly now. But then, you know, I thought, well, I literally just have to lay still. No one's ever going to see this video. So I said yes. He, he wanted me to come as soon as possible then. Like, I feel like if I would have been willing to go that day, he would have been okay with it. But we made plans to meet up the next day. He gave me an address to show up. And this was a different location than the warehouse or the office. This was a home. Oh, wow. Now that's getting a little dark. So I show up and I, I park outside and I'm looking at this house in a little neighborhood. I knock on the door and this lady opens the door. It's his girlfriend. And she seems a little irritated about me being there, but she lets me in and says hi. And their house was normal looking. I mean, it was clean and there was actually a, a kid there at the time that I got there and they were about to have lunch. So they invited me to sit down and eat with them before we started filming. Oh, okay. Did that set off any alarm bells for you or do you think you felt I comfortable? feel like... Oh, the most naive person in the world, because no, I was just like, oh, what a friendly person. 
Oh, yikes. Do you think maybe the kid being there, it, it kind of took you off guard too? I mean, I think it that, would for me. That actually made me comfortable because I was like, these people are just a normal. They have a family. I felt safe there. I was like, there's other people here. There's a woman here. There's a child here. They're just having a meal. We ate food together and I had some lemonade that Carl brought food for everybody, brought drinks for everybody and set them down on the table. And I just kind of listened because I am, I'm a quite an observer and I can be shy sometimes. And so I just kind of sat there and listened to them having their usual family talk. And they did just seem normal. Like there was nothing that would indicate during this conversation that we were about to go film a morgue fetish video. It didn't seem like that. They seemed normal. It blows my mind. It does, because it sounds so normal up until the part where you say we were about to film a morgue fetish film. Right. I mean, that's just, it's disturbing. Yeah. Looking back, it, it really, really is. And so we finish eating and we get up and Carl actually ends up leading me out the front door. And I'm thinking, okay, well, where are we going? He takes me around the side of the house and there's a door there um, that leads into a basement. Oh, wow. And so he opens this basement door and we start walking down the stairs. And I'm thinking, again, another moment where I'm just so naive. I'm thinking that when I get down to the bottom of the stairs, that there's going to be the whole camera crew there, you know, like like in the warehouse. Right. I would assume so, too. That's what you had experienced before. Were they there? Were there other people in the basement? Oh, absolutely not. There is a tripod with a camera. And it's just Carl and me alone in this basement. Oh, wow. That is frightening. The main area of the basement was set up pretty cozy. Like it looked like a little living room with a couch and a coffee table and a lamb. There was a nice rug on the ground. He showed me this like side area where he had a morgue set up there. He was actually using like a pool table with a sheet over top of it. So he didn't really have a real morgue slab. And that really made me feel like he was being truthful about, you know, this was a weird request that he was just making happen one time for a client. Yeah. What happened next? He's like telling me that he's getting ready to film and he's messing with the camera and the tripod. And I I think at one point I did ask him where the camera crew was. And he told me that it wasn't necessary for them to be there because it was such a such a basic, easy film that he would just do it himself. And then he stops and he's like, oh, wait. And he goes and he gets this worn gallon-sized Ziploc bag and he unrolls it. And he's like, I I almost forgot. I need you to put this on. What was it? It was a Mickey Mouse watch, like with a dark leather band. Wow. This make you feel uncomfortable or... This actually was the very first time that I felt uncomfortable in his presence. And it's so strange to me because that out of, you know, out of all these red flags that we've been discussing, for whatever reason, when I held that watch up and I saw that Disney character on it, the mouse, I was just, I like my heart started beating so fast. And I remember thinking in my head, is this a little kid's watch? Why would somebody want a video of a dead person wearing a Mickey Mouse watch. Yeah, exactly. Why would they? I can be shy sometimes and other times I'm really blunt and straightforward. It's it's a interesting 
part of my personality. But I didn't hold back. I couldn't help myself. I said, why do you want me to wear a Mickey Mouse watch and be dead? Like, why am I doing this? Whose watch is this? Yeah. Did he answer you? What did, what did he Yeah. Say? And he his demeanor really shifted quite quickly. He seemed frustrated with me or irritated that I would be even asking these questions. And he he said, you know, I don't have the answer to that. I make them how they want them. I don't ask questions. Did you believe him? I think that I did believe him. Yes. And he also told me that the watch had been mailed to him by the client. And so he said, I don't know. It just came in the mail. And then he said, you should know that this watch is the most important thing in this film. So if you're not willing to wear this watch, I'm going to have to pay $500 to somebody else who is. Oh, wow. And there was no reason at that time that that would mean anything to you either. Would it? No, no. Other than me just thinking like, this is creepy because it's a cartoon character that children love. I was a little bit frightened by that, but... He was like staring me down after he mentioned that he'd have to pay somebody else if I wasn't willing to do it. And so I ended up putting the watch on my wrist and, you know, it fit me really well. It felt like a grown-up's watch. It did not, you know, it was not a struggle to put it on and it, it felt nice and expensive and it just, it fit me well. So at that point, I calmed down a little bit and I was like, okay, it's, you know, this is a grown-up's watch. I'm not participating in some sort of like pedophile pornography. This is, I'll be okay. I'll just, I'll just get through this. Wow. Did he want you to act out anything else? I mean, you know, it's a morgue film. What was the cause of your death? So here's another spooky part of this. After I put this watch on, I have, it's like my memory shifts from being a full-blown movie where I could tell you where we were standing, how things smelled, just the whole shebang. At this point where I put this watch on, my memory starts to give out. Like I am almost seeing snapshots of this experience. And I do remember being like propped up against a couch, like I was sitting on the floor and he was, he had asked me to just be limp and not move. And he had told me that I needed to not breathe and not blink. And that was like really important because I was supposed to be dead. So there were a few different positions that he put me in, like propped up against the couch, um, kind of slumped over sitting up. I remember being on the floor with an arm up. And then I also remember being on the, the morgue slab. I want to dig deeper here. When you're talking about you're seeing it in snapshots. I have to ask, you had eaten in, with them earlier and you'd had some lemonade. Do you think you were drugged? I really do believe that I was drugged, yes. Now that I'm older and that I can look back on this experience, that really, really terrifies me that my memories were like that. Just so hard for me to remember the rest of what happened. And I don't remember going home that night. I don't remember leaving his basement. I don't remember getting back home, anything like that until the next morning. Alicia, that is frightening. It's really quite scary. I ended up telling my sister this story. And for the listeners, if you listen to episode one, that's how LaDonna and I became connected because I told my sister this memory of mine and she showed me an article. Well, it was a um, like a reward 
picture that was linked to LaDonna's Who Killed Melissa Witt page because it talks about the Mickey Mouse watch. And as I told my sister the story, she was very, very scared by it. And she said, don't you know, like serial killers keep trophies. And she was like, this sounds like a video that a serial killer might order. Oh, absolutely. It does. It's frightening. I I mean, I keep saying that, but it's like you're telling this story and I'm on the edge of my seat and I'm just envisioning, you know, this seedy death fetish producer that's got you in this basement making this horrific film and he potentially drugged you. The fact that you're alive today, I think you're lucky. I truly do. This is really, really, really scary stuff. It's just been so, I would say buried. Like it's not something I've thought about much. I just kind of moved on with my life and didn't ever really talk about this with anybody. Just for the listeners, I'll kind of dive back in. So my sister shows me some stuff about LaDonna's website. I end up leaving a tip for the WIT team about this experience. But I am sort of a perfectionist and something that really bothered me about giving them this, giving LaDonna and the whole team and eventually the Fort Smith police this information was that I actually didn't know Carl's last name. He had never told me. I didn't know what his business name was. I didn't know where his website was that people could order films. And so I just didn't feel like I was doing them any favors by just dropping this bomb and then walking away. And I felt really compelled that I needed to at least be able to get them in touch with him. Oh, and I'm glad you did. I mean, we needed that information. It did set the wit case on fire. I couldn't let it go. I started looking around on the internet after I had spoken with LaDonna. My searches were not yielding anything of value. I couldn't figure it out. And then I just had this moment where I almost became the client in my mind. And I was like, okay, if I were looking for this kind of custom film, what would I type into Google? And so I ended up cringing, but I typed in morgue porn and hit enter. And I just, my mind was completely blown by how many results there were of this kind of pornography. There were so many videos and I was, I was scrolling through, I was on Google. So I was scrolling through thumbnails of these morgue porns and my heart totally stopped when I saw an image of myself. That is devastating. Carl had lied to me about this being a private video. It's all over the internet. It led me to his production site. And I learned that he had lied about this being a one-time request too. He actually has like, I think about 7,000 videos where he's making morgue porn or he's making strangling videos, death fetish videos for people to enjoy. It's frightening to know that this exists, but what makes me really sad for you is that he has exploited you in this way and tricked you into making this video and potentially drugged you to do it. Yeah, it's really a hard pill to swallow because there's just so many layers. It's just so messed up. Like on every level, it's messed up. That's really where our paths intersect, truthfully. After your sister found that article about the Melissa Witt case and the reward that we were offering for her Mickey Mouse watch, I mean, that's when you came forward. And I mentioned earlier, it's what turned the the Melissa Witt case upside down. case was 
27 years old and we had never received any kind of information like this. It's mind boggling, but what's important for our listeners to understand in a case that's almost three decades old, it's something that's pretty heart racing to get brand new information that's never been heard about a cold case before. Oh, for sure. And I want to make sure before we move forward, just to let everybody know, because I did find that thumbnail of myself, I had to watch the video. I really did. I knew that I needed to give it to the police. And so I watched the video. And that's what really made me realize that there was a strong possibility that I had been drugged because there was so much about that movie that I did not remember happening. And one of those things was that the beginning of the film starts out with me. I'm on the floor like I remember being on the floor propped up against the couch, but I have this cord around my neck and there's all these red marks there as if I have been strangled to death. It's awful. Which when I realized that the cause of my death in this morgue film was the same cause of death for Melissa Witt, it just, I had chills for a whole month. I would. I mean, who wouldn't? I mean, it's it's almost as you're telling me the story and, you know, what I know about the Witt case and the horrifics around how I feel he chose you. It's like he was looking for someone to star in this particular film. I, I hear the story and I feel like he already knew that he needed someone to fill this role. And he lucked out and he found you. I've seen the video and it's striking the resemblance that you have to Melissa Witt. It is. That part has always bothered me. But what's, you know, even scarier is the fact that this video of this strangled girl is wearing this Mickey Mouse watch, which is central to the film. It's straight out of a horror movie. It's like a conspiracy. We were both just in agreement then that this felt like a huge discovery and it was something that deserved time and attention. We both at that point needed to know me for my own personal journey at that time and you because you've been dedicated to Melissa Witt's unsolved murder case for so many years. We both had this vested interest in getting to the truth. So LaDonna, could you tell our listeners just a little bit about the murder of Melissa Witt in case they're unfamiliar. Melissa, at 19 years old, was kidnapped from a Bowling World parking lot in Fort Smith, Arkansas in December of 1994. There was an altercation in the parking lot. Nobody really sees this. You know, there's some passerbyers. It's dark outside. They're too far away to make an identification and there are no video cameras or any of those things you know, to catch this thing happening in this parking lot. But so she's attacked. Nobody knows what happens and she just disappears. She's gone for about 45 days before her body is discovered in the Ozark National Forest. And she had been strangled. She was found in the National Forest completely nude. Everything had been taken from her. You know, her jewelry, her clothing, her shoes, her purse, everything including a Mickey Mouse watch that had been given to her the year before as a gift. And it's always been believed by law enforcement and investigators in the case that whoever murdered Melissa Witt kept that watch as a memento, as a trophy, you know, as something that they could have to 
continue to remember Melissa by and to remember what they had done. And so the, the Mickey Mouse watch has just always been critical to the case. As soon as I got involved with the case and found out about the details and, and knew the investigators were on the hunt for that watch, our team worked diligently to tell the story, to offer rewards and a reward specifically for that Mickey Mouse watch. And I'm so glad we did that. I'm so glad that we took the time and fought the battle to go through all the hoops that were necessary to be able to offer that reward. Because, you know, thankfully there was a statewide magazine, AY magazine that covered the story and talked about Melissa's disappearance, her subsequent murder, the fact that the Mickey Mouse watch was stolen and paralleled it to another murder in Texas where another young woman named Melissa was also wearing a Mickey Mouse watch that was stolen at the time of her death. And thankfully, because that story ran, you came forward, you sent a tip over through our tip line, you know, you called, you reached out to the Fort Smith Police Department. And it's just, it's mind boggling to hear your story because of all the leads that we've processed, I would have never dreamed that anything like this was even possible that there was somebody making movies about young women who are strangled that were also wearing a Mickey Mouse watch. And I think that that's really important because the likelihood that that's happening and it's not related to the Melissa Witt case is pretty small. Yeah, it is such a, like those two details together, what a rare find. And through our investigation into these death fetish communities, we have discovered that there's more than one film like this with a woman being strangled wearing that watch that the producer that I met has made more than one film like that. And so it's just super eerie to connect the dots there about there being multiple films and there being multiple real murders that have those features present in them. Well, absolutely. And does it mean that they were involved in the murder of Melissa Witt? I mean, it, it could mean that. It could also mean that they are making films that are modeled after that kind of a crime, which is still equally, it's unnerving to know that that exists. And you know, as you dig deeper into this, as we did, you know, you jump into this investigation to see if there is a connection between Carl and the murder of Melissa Witt. We realized that there are tons of videos out there, thousands and thousands that are depicting these quote unquote fantasy murders of young women. And something has to be done about that. We've got this group of people that are demanding that these films be made to meet some sort of sick fantasy that they have. And I think that's dangerous. It's well, it's illegal in many places. It's also very dangerous. The scary part for me is that it could be depicting real crime far beyond just picking a murder out of the blue and saying, I'm going to make a movie about this. I mean, I think that there are videos out there that are pointing to much more, something much darker, and that has to be exposed. Absolutely. And as we started making accounts to go into these communities, these forums, and, you know, kind of blend in with the members of the community, we started finding some specific usernames who 
seemed a little bit more intense than some of the others. LaDonna, will you talk a little bit about Horror Man? Horror Man. Oh, just the name. It just, it brings up dread for me. Going through those message boards, the forums, the things that Alicia is talking about, you know, he came across the screen name named Horror Man, and he's writing about all kinds of strangulation crimes. And his love for death fetish, how much he loves that fantasy. We continue to research him, can remember the day that we find some things that he's posted that were so similar to the murder of Melissa Witt that it was chilling. It was one of the first times that I had ever been truly scared that perhaps somebody was out there in this death fetish community that knew what happened to Melissa and quite possibly had been involved in her murder. It was that specific. I mean, they talked about a bowling alley and basically kidnapping and strangling a girl. As we continue to look into Horror Man, me specifically, somehow he is able to uncover my identity. And I can remember the day that I, I called Alicia in a panic because Horror Man had contacted me. He had sent me an email to my real email address. Do you remember that that afternoon, Alicia, that I was so scared that he actually knew who I was? Not the screen name that I was working undercover as. I mean, he knew who LaDonna Humphrey was. That was a terrifying discovery for both of us because we were both in these forums. We were using VPNs to block our IP addresses. We were using throwaway emails. There shouldn't have been any way for Horror Man to figure out who you were unless he perhaps owned some of these websites and could see details on the back end somehow. That was terrifying because it wasn't just you in all these communities. It was me. I was in there doing research, taking screenshots, documenting everything. And so him coming forward and taunting you in that way just sort of set the stage for some other things that would happen. And shortly after you had that experience, I started to get some really creepy text messages to my cell phone number. And the things that they would say to me indicated that this wasn't just some random person. It was related to the death fetish community. I will read some of those. Yeah, they're not um, for the faint of heart, for sure. Yeah, that, that's a good, a good warning for people. So one of the first ones I ever got said, suck it, you ninny muggin. Your crotch stinks. Your lips were soft and easy to part. Did your breasts grow any since the last time I saw you? Do you remember how I pounded you? I pounded you real good. You just slept through the whole pounding, you... Never contact me or my associates again. I'm asking nicely, lady. Consider this my act of kindness. Your friend won't get the same offer. Now, f off. And I want to point out, this is crude and it's frightening. There's a line that he types in this message that says, you slept through the whole pounding. That is an admission in my mind of the possibility that you were drugged. Do you agree? Yeah. And the fact, like it took me, when I read this message, I gasped out loud. And I, in my head, I thought, this is Carl. There's nobody else who would say this to me. It was so specific. The part where he asked if my breasts grew any, I I don't have very large breasts. And 
I had been worried for weeks. I'd been thinking, did I, you know, what happened to me the rest of that night? Why don't I remember going home? The thought of that is very, very, very disturbing to me because I feel like that there's so much more to the story than you may ever be able to remember because I do so strongly believe that Carl drugged you that night. And yeah, it's just, and I think he's, he's admitting that in that text message. There's oh. nobody else who could have sent that to me. I don't believe that's absolutely true. And his last sentence, you know, your friend won't get the same offer that, that tells me he knew at that time they had figured out that you and I were working together, how they oh, discovered yeah. that. I don't know that we'll ever know for sure, but I think he's definitely talking about me. And I think you received some su subsequent messages that actually named me. Oh, yeah, because the next one that came in said it took us some time to decipher the information. But now we know you and LaDonna Humphrey are sisters. It all makes sense now. I think it took them some time to figure out that we were working together. But that once that they did and they've done their Google searches and their research, he had to have known at this point that you had come forward with information about this Mickey Mouse watch. Why else would we have teamed up? and dived into this investigation into these forums where they, you know, eventually discovered us. But I think at that point, he knew there was a problem. I think so, too. And so this next one, it says investigative reporters are, are you a or just a wannabe? I have a story you can report on. It's about a woman who's been working on a cold case about a dead girl in the hills of Arkansas. She died last night, though, in a tragic house fire. They still can't find her kids. I hope they weren't sold. Why don't you write about that? Even hearing you read that now, my blood runs cold. The death threat, the burning my house down. You know, I do have kids. I have seven kids. You know, hearing someone write about the fact that they can't find my kids and they've potentially been sold into what I can only assume is human trafficking, it still makes my stomach lurch. You know, that's the day I knew that we needed to take some legal action. And I believe it was the very next day I went to Little Rock and met with an attorney. Even at that point, we're taking action and we feel like we're doing something. The messages didn't stop. They still haven't stopped. No, it's been over a year now. It's been like um, about 13 months, I think. And I even get messages today. I got one when I woke up this morning. I had another message. They come in about every 48 hours and they have for the last year. So this is changed our lives because we know that we're we're in the crosshairs for these people and we have to kind of wonder why you know why did these people care so much that we're investigating them that we're in their communities looking at what they're doing i think that it really says something that they have held on to this for a year and they won't let up because they're terrified that we're going to expose something that's going on in this community. And I can only assume that it's crime. I agree. I don't know what that crime is. I'm not going to speculate on everything that we think that is going on within those communities. But there's a reason why they're targeting us. Text messages, emails, voice recordings. I've received flowers at my home, at hotels that I've stayed in for conferences. The list goes on and on and on. I've had people show up to my workplace these are people who are beyond dedicated to scare us so much so that we're going to run away from the story. And 
little did they know it only drove us to dive in deeper to put a stop to what's clearly going on within these communities. There are secrets that need to be uncovered. I believe that we are standing on the edge of a story like no other. And not just from a journalistic standpoint, I mean a story that could uncover crime, that could point to potential resolution for cold cases and potentially stop things that are happening that exploits you know, young women, young men throughout the United States. I just think there's something here because they're fighting so hard to keep us quiet. Absolutely. I mirror you in that opinion. And we're just a good match at this point because we both feel so passionately about following through and figuring out what's really going on here. Why are these fetishers so passionate about guarding this space and these secrets. This podcast is really, it's a tool for us to share this information and connect with other people who might be able to to shed even more light on what's going on in there. And so if you feel like you have the stomach for it and you're listening to this, I would encourage you to to research this a little bit and see what's going on there because it's it's just horrifying. And there is definitely a mystery to uncover here. And I think it's also important that people understand within these communities, usernames and these things that are being created in these forums, it's not like it's John Smith loves death fetish. I mean, these usernames, they tell a story in themselves. Things like Grim Reaper, Nylon Killer, The Stalker, The Butcher. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of names like this that are gory and frightening. Granted, maybe some people are choosing those for the shock value, but how many are not? And that just also spills over into the content. Don't you agree? Yeah. Like when I think about somebody calling themselves the butcher, that's their persona. So in their head all day, they're walking around feeling like the butcher, thinking about who they're going to hack up. Yeah. And it's people like that who are spending ridiculous amounts of time viewing this content and there's all kinds of content within these forums that I'd like for us to just touch on today if we could and I want the listeners to understand how horrific it is I mean you've got videos of drowning stabbing women being strangled tortured shot you've got women that are fighting to the death you've got acts of necrophilia I mean these videos are not simple videos. These are things that will shock you. It's led yeah, they're so it, extreme. Yeah, they're extreme. That's a great word for it. I mean, it's led me to see a therapist. Uh, I've spent 20 years working in a field where I've assisted with missing persons cases. I've read about homicides. I've seen the crime scene photos. This type of content sometimes looks so real. It looks like the real deal. And that's what makes it so disturbing is because often you can't tell the difference. Yes, it's super realistic. And so I feel like that's one category of user in these communities, somebody who's looking for this pornography to download and to watch. But there's also a a lot of other content going on there. Um, There's this thing called manips, which are manipulations of photographs. And the manips and the fictional stories that are in there, as well as the role-playing, those three things really, really concern me. 
And the reason why is because this is a move from being a viewer to being an active participant in this fantasy. So somebody is making these manips and they're taking a photograph of their mom, their sister, their wife, their classmate, some a lot of times it's pictures of somebody they know. They're throwing these pictures up there on the forums and they've been photoshopped to make it look like this person was hanged to death or they'll photoshop in bloody gunshot wounds and they put these photos up there for everybody to just like salivate over and comment on and sometimes they'll even say things like i took this picture of this girl at the gym today i see her every time i'm there and that just oh it scares me so much that there these are real pictures of people that they're putting up there and they're fantasizing about harm It's not right. It's fueling a fantasy that's very dangerous. And even though they say that it's fantasy or the stories that they write that they're fictional stories about killing women, we're, we're talking about long, detailed accounts, you know, that give the play by play of every juicy detail you could think of involved in murdering a woman. And you can tell that they have thought of this a thousand times because they, the way they write about it, it's so detailed. You know that they've thought it out so many times. It's disturbing is what it is. I mean, I've sat across from my therapist on more than one occasion and just wept over the horrors that we've seen that anybody would think it is acceptable to fictionalize these murders of young women, of innocent young women, that they would get so detailed in these stories. And I don't care if you are calling it fiction. It's not a run-of-the-mill horror story. It's the worst of the worst. It's like you're reading a diary from a serial killer, almost. Yeah, because in a horror story, you have all the elements of a classic story. There's character development, there's story development, and a small portion of a horror story does involve a bad guy doing something bad to people. But usually there's a lot of other storytelling elements going on. And the amount of time that you see this sort of violence in a horror film is so minuscule compared to making a whole video where it's just that. These people are spending, I would say, 10, 15, 20, 25 hours a week consuming this and more than that, producing it. These are people that are living in your communities, in your own backyard. And, you know, research shows that the role of fantasy for serial killers and rapists, that is like early signs of the making of a murderer. There's been a lot of research done by the behavioral science unit of the FBI about what exactly the role of fantasy is for serial killers and serial rapists. And they've really concluded that these killers and rapists are programming themselves with fantasy to become murderers and that these fantasies usually start early on in life and they become more intense and more frequent. And there's even been serial killers that have been interviewed about this, asked about it, and they will say, yes, you know, I I had fantasies for years. Like Ed Kemper is one and he's quoted as saying, I knew long before I started killing that I was going to be killing, that it was going to end up like that. The fantasies were too strong. They were going on for too long and they were too elaborate. Well, Ted Bundy, he's another. He's quoted as saying that fantasy that accompanies and generates just the anticipation that precedes the crime is always more stimulating 
than the immediate aftermath of the crime itself. And that, oh, yeah. that, that gets me every time. Every time I read that, I get the chills because that's what's happening in these communities. And there was uh, Dr. Scott Bond who was talking about fantasy and how fantasy even spurs killers to keep killing because they cannot get an actual murder to go and play out as good as the fantasies in their head. So they're going to keep trying to perfect what they're doing out in the world uh, when they finally do cross that line and murder somebody. It's not as good as their fantasy. And Ted Bundy has, you know, he's basically said that 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 was true for him. Nine times out of 10 in these stories, these videos, these things that were we're seeing in these um, death fetish communities, the act of murder, it doesn't just end there. It almost always ends with an act of necrophilia. And that is not something that's normal. Murder's not normal either. But I mean, this act of murder is culminating to that act that these group of people seem to think is okay. The fact that they want to be gratified at the end of this murder by, you know, sexually satisfying themselves with this dead corp is what I find probably ultimately disturbing, Alicia. It's it's just hard for me to comprehend. It's sick. It makes me nauseous. And it really is like it's a mental illness. That necrophilia is in the DSM-5, which is the mental health, the diagnostics manual. It is classified in there as a disorder. And the fact that this obsession and this kind of pornography is available on the internet, I think it should concern everybody. It absolutely should. We could probably go on and on and talk about this all day, Alicia. I think that we could. I think this is probably a good, a good stopping place for us today. There's a lot of information to absorb from this podcast. I think this episode is probably going to be one of our longer podcasts that we release. There's just so much to say in terms of, you know, how this all came together so people really and truly, you know, understand the backstory. But it's just good to sort of understand where we've been and where we're going, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. I'm really happy that we're able to share our journey and our story thus far. And now you all know why we're so passionate about this. It's really unfolded quite naturally. And if you asked us last year if we would be doing this, it sounds horrific. And most people would say, no, I'd never want to explore that topic. But I think that I speak for both of us when I say that this just feels like um, a mission that was placed in our laps that we both feel like we need to respond to. And so we're going to. Thank you so much for listening today. Please join us next week as we expose the secrets of one of the top selling death fetish producers, Peachy Keen Films. If you have a deep, dark secret about your community that you would like us to expose, please reach out and tell us at deepdarksecretspodcast at gmail.com. Again, that is deepdarksecretspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and remember everyone to keep your lights on. For exclusive content from this episode and all other episodes, head on over to our Patreon patreon.com backslash deep dark secrets sign up and you'll be able to see some visuals that accompany each episode